Good to see y'all. It's kind of quiet out there. All right. Wake up. Uh, I want to thank Brian. Is, is he here? It's, it's always bad when you point at somebody and they're not here. Uh, anyway, I'll thank him in his abstentia uh, for preaching last week. How many remember uh, his first point? I was going to ask him, but he's not here. First, he had uh, three or four points. The first point was? God is light. Second point was? You got to do something with that light. Walk in it. Right. Walk in the light. And so, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, it's so true. God is light, and we walk in the light. And if you put those together, we're walking in God, with God. God is walking with us. And I just thought, you know, that could be a banner over uh, all we're learning in Colossians. You know, we're walking with God in His light as we study what He has for us, what He's giving to us. Uh, as we live in obedience to Him, we're walking with Him. And see, that's the thing we, I want to emphasize just right now over this whole thing is what I'm going to talk about today, what I talked about last week, what we talk about, especially when we come to the application parts, the things we have to do in God's Word, it's not that we have to muster the ability to do them, it's that we have to submit to God, to the Spirit within us, who we're walking with as He works in and through us to do them. So this is, in His power, we do what we're going to talk about today. And today we turn, again, to Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, uh, we'll finish chapter 3 and begin chapter 4. I'm really hoping to finish the book before I take a little break and go to St. Louis and see my, my daughter-in-law's here today. She brought my granddaughters, and I'm excited about that. But uh, we are going to go see them, and we'll see my son, who didn't come with them, uh, in the middle of June. So I'm hoping to finish by then. So if you have a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 22, the Apostle Paul writes, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he does, he has done and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let me set the stage uh, for these verses by reviewing what's gone before. In the first part of Colossians, Paul established both the supremacy of Christ, Christ is supreme over all, we're, we're doing this in Christ and that those who trust in Christ will experience an amazing spiritual transformation. They, we, will both die to our old sinful selves and be reborn to a new life in Christ. We are new creatures in Christ. But to experience this new life that we've been given, we must, again to use Brian's theme from last week, walk in the light. We must walk on the path that God... God who loves us and wants what's best for us has laid out 
in His Word. Put simply, we must walk with God in obedience to God to experience the new life that He's given us. That makes sense? And in the second half of Colossians, Paul gives us a number of commands from God instructing us how to experience our new life in Christ. Two weeks ago, we looked at verses 18 through 21. Here, Paul gives instructions for family life. To experience the fullness of our new family life, there are certain ways we, in the power of the Spirit, are to behave. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands are to love their wives. Children are to obey their parents. And fathers, parents are not to provoke their children. And if you remember, one of the things I mentioned was that none of us fall into all of these categories, and some of us fall into none of these categories. Some are not wives, husbands, children, or parents, at least currently. However, the instructions that Paul gives contain principles that we all should understand, so that, among other things, we might biblically counsel, pray for those who do fit these specific categories. We should be concerned about our brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as ourselves. And that brings us to our passage for today, where we face a similar situation. Paul is giving instructions to bondservants, or slaves and masters. And while slavery still exists, I looked this up and I was amazed this week, still exists in some parts of our world, there are no masters or bondservants, slaves here. However, the instructions that Paul gives still contain principles for areas of our lives. In general, they can be implied to any relationship where you find yourself either under the authority of someone else or having authority over someone else. That could be teachers and students. Where's my wife? She's a teacher. This was just, oh, Francesca's working on being a teacher. So, uh, so you can apply this to your uh, students, coaches and athletes, pastors and elders, and congregations, you guys do know, you're supposed to be obeying me, right? That's not how it always works. Anyway, these instructions could even apply to parents and children. He's given some instructions to uh, parents and, and wives and husbands, but these could also, in principle, apply to parents and children. But in our culture, the most common place outside of the family where one person has authority over another is in the workplace, right? And the relationship that these verses are most often applied to are that of employer and employee, and I think that's justified. So as we look at our text for today, we'll both examine what Paul is saying in his world and then make practical application for our world. But before we look at Paul's instructions, we need to understand their cultural context. The cultural context of Paul's instructions. That's our first point. What was it like in Paul's day in the Roman world uh, when these instructions were given? And to best understand this, we need to look at the range of meaning of the Greek word uh, doulos. Who's heard of that word before? Doulos. Uh, I think it, if you have a, they have these things called doulas, these midwife type people. They take it from this word. It's translated bond servants in the ESV. Bond servants obey in everything that your earthly master uh, are, everything those who are your earthly masters. 
Same word, doulos, is translated servants in the King James Version and slaves in the NASB and NIV. And as you hear those words, slaves, bondservant, servants, those English words, you understand that each has different connotations in our culture. But in the Roman Empire, the single word doulos could mean any one of the three. It's kind of like the word agath, love. We have one word for love, whereas in the Greek, eros, phileo, agape, I think storgi is another one. But in English, it's, all, it's sort of reversed here. We have, they had one word, doulos, and we have several words. Doulos is most often, most often meant slave, which refers to someone who was owned by someone else. In the Roman world, there were many ways someone could become a slave. You could be born into slavery. You could be captured in war. Infants who were abandoned at birth, which was more common than you would think, were sometimes taken and raised up in a household and became a slave in that household. Or because of poverty or other reasons, you could actually sell yourself into slavery. Ancient tradition dating back to Aristotle Around 350 B.C., classifies slaves as things, living tools. One Roman scholar classified farm implements in three classes. The articulate, the inarticulate, and the mute. The articulate being slaves. Gaius, the Roman lawyer, said, We may note that it is universally accepted that the master possesses the power of life and death over a slave. And if a slave ran away... Once captured, he was branded on the forehead with the letter F for fugitivus, fugitive in English, and sometimes even put to death, uh, no trial. So that's the first meaning of doulos and, if, and, what, and what it looked like in the Roman world. And this meaning would be what uh, we think of with regards to slavery in our own country during the 17th through 19th centuries. The main difference being the Romans did not discriminate based on color of skin. Black, white, any shade in between could be taken and enslaved in Rome. So in the Roman world, as in any world, being a doulos slave was terrible and dehumanizing. Now the same word doulos could also mean, as the ESV translates, bondservant. This refers to someone who is officially bound under contract to serve his master for a specific period of time. When the contract expired, the person was freed. They were given the wages they had earned and had been saved up for them by their master, and they were officially declared a, a freedman. A person could, become, could, because of poverty or other reasons, choose to become a bondservant. In fact, with no state-funded welfare system, bond service, or even, uh, as mentioned, slavery was often the only option for some. It was either death, slavery, bond service. And while bond servants uh, was still under the authority of their master, they had certain rights based on the contract uh, that a slave did not. And finally, doulos could also mean uh, simply servant which was similar to a bondservant, but may not involve a contract at all. It refers to someone who's hired to serve in a household, a farm, whatever. Their wages were not held as that of a bondservant, but were given in regular intervals. 
They were still under the authority of the master, but could choose to leave at any given time. So this use of the word dulo, servant, would be the closest to what we experience in our uh, world today, in our workplace. Now, all of these types of servitude, slaves, bondservants, servants, existed in the Roman world. Ancient historians estimate that there were some six, sorry, let me do this right, 60 million doulos of one form or another in the Roman Empire. This is about half the population. And because of this, because so many of the free Roman citizens had owned doulos, work was considered below their dignity. Practically everything was done by the doulos, doctoring and teaching included. And Roman society was clearly divided into two groups, the doulos, the slaves, the bondservants, servants, and the free. Okay, so that's a brief picture of what it meant to be a doulos in the Roman Empire. And into this context, where half the people were slaves, bondservants, servants, uh, comes Christianity. Specifically, uh, the Apostle Paul, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ which included the explicit doctrine of equality of all people in Christ. Consider, for example, Paul's teaching in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for, all are, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Whether you're the wealthiest master or the lowliest slave in Christ, all are one, all are equal. All will equally receive the benefits of new life in Christ and eternal life with Christ. This was new, radical, revolutionary teaching. However, some have questioned the fact that Paul does not condemn outright the practice of slavery. Well, a couple things should be noted. First, whether Paul condemned slavery or not, it was a foundational aspect of the culture he was living in the culture he was seeking to minister to. His direct condemnation would not have ended slavery, but it may have ended his ministry and caused greater persecution for Christian slaves. Don't forget, he was not living in a democracy with elected officials. He was living in a Roman-controlled dictatorship. Also, he was a Jew. And the Jews, like much of the known world, were under the authority, under the boot, if you will, of the Roman Empire. As long as you play by our rules, you're good. You step out of line, we will squash you. And Paul's primary role was not bringing social change, but preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, as history shows, when the gospel is preached, received, believed, and obeyed, inevitable social change occurs. And as we'll see, his instructions to doulos, and specifically to masters, made for radical rethinking of slavery in all its forms. So what did Paul, what did Paul think about slavery? Well, we can be certain Paul was not pro-slavery. We already saw, saw him say that in Christ there is neither slave nor free. And in 1 Corinthians 7, speaking to those who had recently converted, he said, each one of you should remain in the condition in which you were called. Were you a bondservant, a doulos, when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. This is kind of interesting. It's a little paradoxical. Paul is saying, hey, if you're a doulos when you come to Christ, don't be concerned. 
Don't worry about it. Continue to live your life, growing in your relationship with Christ. God, who is sovereign over all, has a plan for you in that situation. However, if you can, gain your freedom. Do that. Paul says it's better to be free than to be a slave. Also to those who might say Paul or the New Testament doesn't explicit, explicitly condemn slavery, we can look at 1 Timothy 1.10. Here Paul lists those who are lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, and profane. They are the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul specifically mentions enslavers. That word in the Greek literally means men-stealers. It includes slave dealers or kidnappers, one who unjustly forces a free man into slavery. And this Paul condemns. This would include much of the slavery in the Roman Empire and slavery that was practiced in our own country. So in summary, what we need to understand, looking back from our current culture where slavery in one in our own country, has been rightly, biblically abolished and condemned, is that Paul was not living it in our culture, and he was walking a thin line. Because he was living in a culture where slavery was everywhere, and it had several forms. My sense is that Paul does condemn slavery, enslaving people, but he also realizes that in the Roman world, choosing to be a bondservant, servant, or even a slave, was often the only way a person or family could survive. And so in this cultural context, Paul provides radical instructions to believing masters and slaves, instructions that along with other concepts from the New Testament would radically change everything, uh, excuse me, eventually bringing slavery to an end. Just recommend watching the the movie uh, Amazing Grace if you haven't seen it. Believer, Christian, uh, William Wilberforce, when slavery was still ubiquitous in our world, I mean in the 1700s, yeah, 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 uh, championed the cause to end it in England, and then that kind of domino affected into much of the known world. So I leave that to you. And again, From these instructions, even though none of us are slaves or bondservants, we can find important principles that apply to our working relationships. And this is important because work is a crucial part of most people's lives. Our culture, this is our cultural context. Today, the average worker still works five days a week, some more, some a little less, and each day is still divided into equal periods, sort of eight hours, right? Eight hours of work, eight hours of sleep. I wish. Man, those days are long gone. And eight hours of uh, free time. Not that you can do whatever you want, but that's when you uh, fix the leaky pipes and tend the garden and all that. So on average, calculating in weekends and vacations, we spend about a quarter of our lives working. Work is so important in our society, that normally uh, it defines, we define people by what they do. I'm a doctor, a lawyer, a pastor, a plumber, an electrician, an engineer, a businessman, etc., etc. And so in this area of working relationships in its many forms, we can find principles from the instructions Paul gives to the doulos, the masters, 
Principles that, if applied, will result in experiencing our new life in Christ as well. And, as I looked around as we were singing, I realized, man, there's, there's about, we're about 50-50 of people who are still working and people who have retired. Or, there's, I think another category is people that work at home. Uh, I wouldn't say that. I mean, those are the hard-workingest people in the world, right, Ashley? Amen, sister, with the two little girls, you know. But sort of like last week's wives and husbands, that's more applicable there. Uh, so I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Half the people this doesn't apply to necessarily. But I would say this, especially to the retired. Retirement is a relatively new cultural concept. It's not in the Bible. It's not a biblical one. And it's not a time uh, to forget about everything and say, oh, I'm retired, and that means I retire and I do what I want. This is the time to do, check off my bucket list. As believers, as Christians in our culture, we may retire from a particular job. That may be the thing to do. You may even be forced to do it. But as long as God gives us breath and strength, we should be working, even volunteering, for our own well-being and for the furtherance of God's kingdom. I think in the begin, work, was, work was given to Adam before sin entered in. He was told to tend the garden, right? We were given work. It's a good thing. So as we look at this text, if you're retired, you might want to consider where you can, are or can work for the Lord as well. I don't know what that might look like for a different. It might it might mean saying, uh, "Look, I'm retired, but maybe I should get a a little part time job so I can have some interaction with my community or something." I don't know. I'm not certainly not telling you what to do because I don't want uh, when I retire you to tell me what to do. But anyway, you get the point, right? And that brings us to our text where Paul begins with instructions for doulos or uh, employees. We're gonna we're gonna talk about. What, again, what it looked like in Rome, and then sort of give it some application for us. Bondservants, doulos, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Hearing those words without the New Testament and Roman culture context we just saw, you would, could easily think Paul was pro-slavery. In fact, people throughout history have used those words to try to convince themselves and others that Paul was pro-slavery. Think about how these words must have sounded to an exploited or oppressed doulos. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now, as we saw with wives and children in our previous study, as we saw in Romans with our government, I say again, Paul was not demanding submission to sinful commands. We must obey God rather than men is always sort of over these things. We're walking with God. We're walking in the light. I talked about your sermon, and you weren't here, Brian. What's up with that? You were handling some emergency, I'm sure. Anyway, just kidding. And yet, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uses the word everything, which is all-encompassing. Doulos were very often asked to do very unpleasant things. This was a tough command, especially when linked with the next phrase, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Eye service refers to work that's only done when the boss is looking. 
We all know what this, like, this is like, right? If you played sports, when your coach is watching, you try to do everything, you exert effort, Trevor, right? But if the coach isn't looking, you know, you might slack off a bit. The room is swept, we, we sweep the room, but the dirt's brushed under the carpet. Work breaks extend until the boss returns. Last week I heard on the radio that the average worker wastes two hours out of their eight-hour workday, but they don't volunteer to be paid for only six hours, just saying. And Paul is saying, this is not the way Christians are to behave. Rather, our service, our work is to be done with sincerity of heart, with all your heart. And again, this command has no qualifications. There's no distinction between pleasant or unpleasant tasks, dull or challenging work. It simply states that everything must be done well from the heart, whether the boss is present or not. Put simply, Christian doulos, employees, should be hard workers. And even in our modern world, uh, this isn't always easy. But imagine if you're a slave in the Roman world. It should be noted that even though Paul is addressing Christian slaves and masters, he's not saying these instructions only apply uh, uh, if your master is a Christian and treats you well. What if your master treats you badly? Wouldn't you naturally want to stick it to him by working as little as possible? So what would motivate a slave to work hard even when their master is away? Well, punishment, for one thing, if you don't get the job done, the master's going to punish you. But is that the correct motivation? Paul seeks to motivate obedience to these instructions by opening the minds of the doulos to a higher reality. Instead of focusing on your earthly master, focus on your master in heaven. At the end of verse 22, he says, Obey your earthly masters, fearing not them, fearing the Lord. Your motivation should not be fear of those on earth, their punishment, what they can do to you, but fear, all respect of your God. Ultimately, it will be the Lord who judges your work ethic, not your earthly master. Paul continues this theme in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. It's a pretty common verse we use in our working, in whatever we do. Again, ultimately, God will judge our work because ultimately our work is for Him. This is a key principle. We are working for the Lord. And that should motivate us no matter what our job is. This reality is what inspired the great work of Mother Teresa in Calcutta. Taking G she took Jesus' words in Matthew 25 seriously. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. She believed that when she and her sisters of charity were cleansing sores and touching the ill, they were doing it to Christ and for Christ. The most menial tasks, washing floors, scrubbing pots and pans, are for the Lord. Mother Teresa believed and did this truth. Now, now her work is seen as noble, right? Ministering to the poor. But most of us in our daily work are not dressing the sores of lepers or tending the dying. You may uh, consider your job as nothing more than a means to a paycheck. 
believing there's nothing noble in the tasks you perform. But Paul says, hey, no matter, I mean, he didn't really say hey, but I said hey. Listen, no matter what you're doing, you're working for God. And that makes any task noble. Think about what the tr- this truth might, how this truth might have transformed the thinking of the Christian doulos in, ancient, in the ancient world. His or her nothing task was actually noble when done for Christ. Because of this, Christian slaves, just history, inevitably brought higher prices on the slave market. By their good, heartfelt, hard work in a difficult, terrible situation, they were bringing glory to God. And side note, if you study church history, you'll see that the church, this early church, spread throughout the Roman Empire, transformed the Roman Empire in a couple hundred years and beyond, not just through the preaching of the apostles, the apostles eventually died, but through the witnesses of slaves who came to Christ. It was the doulos who, in, who by their, uh, by their hmm, it was the doulos who enlarge in their response to the gospel. Okay, let me say this right. It was by far, in Paul's preaching, in that early thing, it was the doulos, the slaves, the servants that responded to the gospel, that became believers in Christ. And it was the doulos who took the gospel then to the ends of the earth or the ends of the Roman Empire, the known earth of that time. Okay, so back to the text. In verse 24 and 25, Paul continues to give motivation for the believer's work ethic. Not only are you working for the Lord, but also knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. The Lord we serve will will reward our hard work or punish us for our wrongdoing. What we receive will be good or bad depending upon our performance. You guys get that? And just to be clear, we're not talking about working for our salvation. That, Paul has already established, is a free gift by God's grace given to those who put their faith in Christ. But that being said... All believers will have their works, their work, judged. Paul makes this clear, 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Clear enough, right? This can be good or bad news, depending on how, how we live our Christian lives, how we walk in the light, how we obey God's word. But to the first century Christian doulos, this uh, was certainly good news. Because under Roman law, a slave could inherit nothing. Yet here, they learned from Paul that they would receive an inheritance, a reward. God rewards faithful workers. This ought to be an encouragement to us because whatever, whatever our jobs might be, God pays us so well that when we get to heaven, we'll wish we'd worked even harder. So in verses 22 through 25, we have Paul's instructions and motivation for a work ethic uh, of the doulos in the Roman world. Now let's apply this. We've done a little application, but let's apply it to our world, our work ethic. 
First, I want us to see that nowhere does Paul promise an earthly reward for our hard work. This can be a problem for us. Yes, he does promise a future heavenly reward, which is far better if you realize it. And it's certainly possible that we will receive an earthly reward for hard work. I mean, read the book of Proverbs. It's all over there. But we must not think that if we seek to live up to Paul's instructions regarding work, all will go well on the job. I learned this early in life at one of my very first jobs. I worked as a, I don't think, I don't know what they call it. We were box boys, even though there were girls at the time, uh, at Stater Brothers. And it was my goal as a Christian, both because of Paul's instructions and because I wanted to be promoted to checker, to be the best box boy ever. I wanted, uh, I wanted the earthly reward, okay? So I worked very hard. I ran everywhere I went. I gathered carts quickly and in the, in the summer heat. I bagged groceries. I was good at that. I helped customers. And I did so well that the manager made me, uh, gave me a harder job, uh, the opening box boy. What that meant was I came in uh, before this, I think it was an hour before the store opened, and I cleaned up after the night crew. The guys were there stocking the shelves at night when the store was closed. Now, things went well until one morning when I arrived at the store, and it was in a total disaster. Usually, there were a couple things that might have gotten broken as they stocked the shelves, and I had to clean them up. They didn't do any cleanup, by the way. That was not in their contract. They were, they were just stocking the shelves. They got paid way more than I did, so I came in to clean up. But on this fatal morning, there were at least five, maybe ten broken jars, plus there was the regular, just massive amounts of cardboard strung around the aisles that I had to pick up. And then I had to sweep and mop the floor of the whole store. And even though I worked as hard as I could, I didn't finish cleaning up before the manager arrived and opened the store. And it wasn't long before I heard uh, Cliff report to the office, come over the store speakers. The heart was pounding. When I arrived, when I arrived in the office, the manager began to berate me. He told me I had failed to do my job, and he used words that I cannot repeat here. And when I tried to explain uh, the unusual circumstances and that I had tried my best, I'll never forget what he said. Well, your best isn't good enough. What do you mean, you jerk? I'm the best box boy you have, I wanted to say. But I just uh, instead... I think it was 18, 17, I don't know. I just stood there and took it. How discouraging that was. Even though I tried to work my hardest, it wasn't good enough for my boss. At times like this, I, I, I imagine we all have stories like that. It's good to know that ultimately God is our master, our employer. We're working for Him. He knows our hearts, He knows our circumstances, and He will reward us accordingly. But don't expect constant accolades from the world, even if you follow Paul's instructions. Instead, rest in the fact that God knows and cares about how hard you're working. Second, Paul's teaching here is not a call to work, workaholism, workaholicism. I don't know the right word, but you, can, you know what I'm saying. The Roman slave, the bondservant or servant may not have had a choice about how much they worked, but we do. 
And as right as a biblical work ethic is, our desire for wealth can be easily perverted into worship of work. As Paul warns Timothy, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Yes, we're to work hard. We're not to cheat our employers with laziness, but we're not to neglect other areas of our lives. Our families, our friends, our churches, our time in the Word of God, our time in prayer. So we are to do our very best at work, but life is more than work. It's only a quarter of the time. We got three quarters of other things for us in our culture. And then third and most obvious, Christian, uh, Christians ought to be the best workers. Remember, we're working for the Lord. And our work is not only a means to provide for ourselves and our families, but it's a way to witness to the world about the God we serve. And never forget, as a Christian, you will be a witness one way or another. People are watching you to see if you live up to what you say you believe, to see if you are the best worker. This came home to me when I heard some high school teachers talking about one of their colleagues. Isn't he a Christian, they said? Well, why, why does he always come late and leave early? Why doesn't he ever volunteer for anything outside of his regular classroom work? This Christian teacher developed a reputation among his colleagues for being uncaring and lazy. This ought not to be. Christians, in whatever we do, should have the best in attitude, the best in dependability, the best in integrity. All of us who are employed must be faithful, hard workers, or we are sinning. We are disobeying the word God has for us. And finally, we must realize that there is nobility in working for the Lord. 19th century Christian poet Gerard Manley Hopkins put it this way, smiting on an anvil, sawing a beam, whitewashing a wall, driving horses, sweeping, scouring, add what you do to the list. Everything gives God some glory. If being in His grace, you do it as your duty. He is so great that all things give Him glory if you mean they, sh- if you mean they should. This is, uh, no, there is nobility in working for the Lord because God will fill our lives with meaning and He will be glorified through us when we work for Him. So these are the instructions and the applications for the doulos, the employees, if you will. Now we turn to instructions for masters or employers. In chapter 4, verse 1, Colossians, we read, Masters, treat your bondservants, your doulos, justly and fairly. The word master is the Greek kyrios, and it's the same word that uh, is used for Lord. It means to have authority, control over another. Now, if you notice, the master's instructions, instruction, it's singular. There's just one. There's much less words for the masters than for the, uh, for the slaves, for the doulos. But as we'll see, it's, it's much more radical this instruction for the time in which Paul lived. In fact, of all Paul's instructions to wives, husbands, children, parents, and bondservants, this one to masters probably sounded the most radical to the Roman ear. Remember, in Roman society, bondservants, servants, were of a much lower standing than their masters. And under Roman law, slaves had no rights at all. 
Therefore, to instruct a master to be just and fair with those who were thought of as property and who, had, uh, who he had almost absolute authority over would have been revolutionary. Also, in Roman culture, uh, this instruction may have been very difficult for one to carry out. Given the social conditions of the time, any master who sought to provide his slaves with what was right and fair ran the risk of being called out, ostracized by his fellow Romans, slave owners. A master's fair, just treatment of his slaves would have been a radical departure from the norm and could have caused slaves of other masters to take notice and become disgruntled, thinking, uh, why can't my master be more like Philemon over there? By the way, read the book of Philemon. It's in this context as well. Uh, Philemon was, lived in Colossae. He was a slave owner. His slave sort of ran away. Anyway, I was going to go there, but it got too long. So back Philemon, go there. But regardless of the cultural backlash these masters might experience, they are to treat their doulos justly and fairly. That word justly means equitably or rightly. Do what's right. Treat them right. Regard, with regards to your doulos, treat them fairly. Similar. It includes the idea of equality. Treat them fairly, justly, equally. Or we could sum it up, as Jesus did, in what has become known as the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. We're taking this and, and, and applying it to, to masters. That's radical, especially for that day. Masters, how you want to be treated, treat your doulos in the same way, justly and fairly. And again, in the Roman world, this would have been totally ra radical command for masters, but Paul justifies it by saying, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Paul puts the master's treatment of the doulos in a God-centric perspective. Yes, you're the master on earth, but never forget you have a master in heaven. I think Paul is saying several things here. First, you have a master in heaven who treats you justly and fairly. Be like him. Second, you have a master in heaven who owns you, you who you must answer to. There is one who will reward you for what you do, whether good or evil. And third, Paul is reminding the master that his servant serves the same Lord. They both have a master in heaven, which means ultimately both master and servant are owned by God. Don't forget, masters, your, your servants can be your brothers and sisters in Christ. And in Christ there is no slave or free, therefore treat them justly and fairly in all things. I don't know for sure about the Roman world, but I, I do know from recently reading the biography of uh, Frederick Douglass, The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass by Frederick Douglass, it was his autobiography. Douglass was born into slavery in the South. He escaped to the North, becoming a leading abolitionist. I know uh, from, from his book that some masters in the South after coming to Christ, or getting uh, religion, as Douglas puts it, treated their slaves fairly and justly by freeing them. Douglas's uh, master came to Christ, or got religion, and he didn't free him, by the way. But others did, which would certainly be the right way to treat others as you would like to be treated, right? I mean, isn't that the, the current, the undertext there? 
But what about our context today? What does this mean for you if you're an employer in our day? Well, I think we can boil it down to one application. If you truly realize that you must answer to God for the way you conduct yourself in your, uh, with your employees, you will care about what happens to them. You'll be concerned that they're paid fairly and justly. You'll be concerned about their sickness, their families. You'll care about their life, their physical, emotional, and especially their spiritual well-being. I'll just call out Gary here, who's an employer, and I know at different times he's had Bible studies with his different employer, employees. I think that's one of the best things you can do, you know, not forcing them. Did you, did you, was there pay based on whether they came to the Bible study or not? No. no. <laughs> it was after hours and volunteered. But that's just a great example, isn't it? Now, if you're going to be like this with your employees, actually caring for them, uh, it may bring more problems than solutions, right? In fact, the kind of, uh, this kind of caring attitude for people in anything, <laughs> involving yourself in people's lives can inevitably mean messiness and difficulties, problems to deal with. But it also means great reward both in heaven and on earth. As you act as Christ would, with care, with justice, with fairness, you'll experience your new life in Him. You'll be living in obedience to your Master in heaven. And as you care for those you have authority over, God will care for you. Masters, employers, one thing is for sure. No matter how much money you make, no matter how successful your business is, if you ignore the instructions of God's Word, if you do not care for your employees, you will never experience the new uh, work life, if you will, in Christ that, that he wants for you. All right, so that's the, that's the stuff. Let me just conclude by giving you a brief picture of what this looked like in my early working life. This is post-Stater Brothers. As I prepared this sermon, especially the part about masters employers. Uh, I couldn't help but think about my first employer and the supervisor uh, after I graduated from college. I graduated in 1987 with a degree in mathematics, had taken a lot of computer science classes, and so I got a job working at a company called Donor Automation as a computer programmer. We put together hardware, this company, and software for nonprofit organizations. And the owner and my supervisor along with the rest of the employees, were Christians. And throughout my time working there, I, along with the other employees, sought to do everything to do our very best, whether we were being watched over or not. We weren't usually being watched over, by the way. We wanted to work as unto the Lord. But this wasn't, wasn't difficult because we were treated both justly and fairly in all circumstances. And strange as it may sound, this was even true for me, when I was fired, uh, laid off actually. Let me explain. Because the company lost a major client, uh, World Vision, if you're familiar with them, there was not enough money to pay everyone. And since I was headed for the mission field, I got the job. They knew I was just there for a, I was a short timer. Uh, I had to be laid off. I remember being called into the office of the owner uh, both he and my direct supervisor were in tears as they explained the situation. 
I'm not sure if anyone has ever felt so bad for their boss when they were being fired as I did on that day. These men exemplified the instructions Paul gave to masters, employers, even when they had to let me go. They did for me what they would have liked done for them. They expressed care and concern. They provided some financial, uh, some financial uh, assistance and even expressed a willingness to help me find a new job. I still have relationship. I ran into my supervisor. Uh, in, this was in Redlands. I ran into him the other day. Not the other day. It was a couple months ago. I took David out to ice cream, my grandson, and there was Don Bell, my immediate supervisor, and we had a good long talk there in the ice cream shop in Redlands. And just a side note, I had a lunch appointment the next day, uh, I, this was already on the calendar, with Pastor Phil Busby, who was the current pastor of this church. He didn't know I was fired or was getting fired, but the next day I was offered a job as a pastoral intern of this church. So surprise, God knew what he was doing, oh, even in that. And be assured, he knows, he knew, he knows what he's doing when he gave these sometimes very difficult instructions to doulos, servants, slaves, bond servants, and masters. So no matter which role we currently hold, let me seek in, in the, let us seek in the power of the Spirit while walking with the Lord to live in obedience to these instructions and the principles that we've received, that we might experience new life in our places of work, wherever they may be. Would you pray with me to that end? Father God, thank you for your word and its, and its concern for every area of our life. Lord, that, uh, that you would have us experience this new life, not just when we're at home or at church, but in our workplaces. Lord, and I pray for employees here. I pray that they would be able to live up to these high standards that they wouldn't be people pleasers, that they wouldn't work for eye service, they would work as for you. Lord, and that you would use them in their workplaces to be witnesses for you just by how hard they work. That might lead to conversations and to words about why they do that. Why are you like this? Why don't you take your long breaks? Father, I just pray for that uh, to be true in the lives of those who are employed here. And for the employers, give them just a, a heart for their employees. They would treat them fairly and justly in all things. And in that, you would receive honor and glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we close out with our last song of worship, I invite you to stand with me as you're able.